The other day I made a little bit of a calculation uh, about this morning and the sermon and so forth, and I thought, you know, if we have, uh, say, 40 people, I don't know how many we have. We've got more or less 40 people here today. Anyway, say we had 40 people, and we'll say that the sermon is uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, If you total all that together, 40 people times 30 minutes, that's what, 100? That's 1,200? And then you divide it by, by 60 minutes an hour. Do you realize that, that this sermon is costing how many hours? 20 hours? How much work can you get done in 20 hours, you know? And yet that is what the church is investing in this particular moment we're going to have right here. So I say to myself, yeah, I better make sure that this is worth, the, worth the time that we can, that we can handle. So, uh, but anyway, I thank you for, uh, being here and I thank Paul for inviting me to, uh, to have the message for this morning. Um, there are several uh, threads or little streams that have come together for the things that I want to talk about this morning. Um, one of them is that uh, just recently uh, I have been thinking about the size, the, 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 the population size of the world. And I think that we're approaching now something like 7 billion people in the world. No, excuse me. Is it 7 billion or 7 trillion? 7, no, 7 billion? Or? Okay, whatever. Yeah, I guess we haven't reached a trillion yet, have we? 7 billion. That's it. Well, anyway. But I checked, I wanted to check something to see how many people, this is sort of, this is going to sound sort of strange, I know, but I was interested to see how many people die every day on this earth. And um, the figures I, I checked, and, and there were several different ones, but most of them came up to about 150 150,000 people a day die on this earth. Now, I've had death in my family. You guys have had death in your family. And you know the pain that is involved. Survivors have varying degrees of pain, but there are going to be people who go through the pain of losing someone they love. I thought of 150,000 people a day. Say that every one of those persons only had three people who are suffering because of their death. There will be more. But if there were only three people, you're talking about close to now 500,000 people a day that are suffering the loss of someone. Day after day after... You know, that's that's about, what, a half million? Each day? And I thought, this world knows a little bit about what suffering and loss is. We go through it all the time. 
We may not think about it in the kind of terms I just mentioned, but that has been one of the little streams that has been coming together to form the little river of uh, thought that I want to share with you this morning. Several other of the little streams that I'm thinking about uh, include um, upside-down thinking. Have you heard that term before, upside-down thinking? And when it's applied to God, the whole idea is that a lot of times our thinking and God's thinking are so different that it's almost as if we have to stand on our head to even start seeing the world the way God sees it. We have to get upside down, see things almost 180 degrees differently to see what's going on. That one has been going through my mind because what I'm going to be talking about this morning, it has a little bit of that upside down thinking to it as well. I also happen to like music, all different kinds of music. Do any of you ever listen to Placido Domingo? Oh, what a voice he has. Oh, to die for. When he sings something like, My Treasure, or Perhaps Love. It's just incredible. But it's not only the voice, but it's the words of those songs where he is elevating the nature of love in a world where the headlines are not focusing on love at all. But I like the music that talks about love. It's, it's uplifting. At least it is, it is for me. I also have found, wait, I just touched something I should not have touched, so hold on here for a second. There we go. <laughs> like I said, this is a learning curve, okay? Uh, another one, one final one, is um, a book on George Washington, our first president. It was entitled, His Excellency, George Washington, His Excellency. Some of you know that when the first president was designated and Washington was the person, they never had a president here. They were from a country where they had kings. So the question was, what are we going to call our president? And one of the ideas was, reverting back to the British background, was we'll call him His Excellency. And Washington said, no, no, no we're, we're not going that direction. It was Mr. President. He left his mark on, on the United States in many, many different ways. Now, how much of that is still being felt, I'm not, you know, that's a whole other question. But listen to these words by Washington. Very few. He said, few men have virtue to withstand the highest bidder. Few people have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. It's almost like today we would say something like the highest price takes the Highest payer takes the, 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 the gift or the car or, or whatever it is. 
Did you see what some of the prices are? The most recent price for a for an apartment in New York City, it's up to now 80 is it 80 million dollars for an apartment in New York City? Can you imagine? But if you have that kind of money and you want it, you can walk away with it. The highest, very few people have the virtue to resist the highest bidder. This morning and next Sunday, I want us to think together, because I will be here for next Sunday morning as well. Um, I want us this morning to think about what I've already alluded to a little bit, what I call the circle of power. Next Sunday, I want us to think together about what I am labeling the circle of love. So together, this series is a circle of power, a circle of love. Next Sunday, we will be celebrating our communion service. And I want that love there to be very obvious in what we're talking about. So this morning, though, I want us to talk about, I want us to think about the topic of the circle of power. There are different ways to think about this and to begin. I have selected this one several years ago while I was in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I was teaching for Crown. Two young ladies, Chandra Parker and Lauren Bang, made plans to go to Russia for a short-term missions trip. And uh, I don't know that either of them had ever been out of the United States before. My wife and I had been to Russia, not as missionaries per se. We did that in South America. But we went to Russia to be involved in some educational ministry that the Russian government was sponsoring to bring Christianity back into the curriculum of the Russian schools. And uh, we were in the uh, Arctic Circle, Krasnoyarsk and Nordilsk. Um, That was quite a cultural experience. And we saw the exercise of power Russian style. Now, we didn't see it as brutally as it could be applied, obviously. But... When one of the cities, Norilsk, could only be entered by Russians if they had the appropriate passport, right within their country they had to have passports to go to different places. And then we happened to see some of the evidences of the concentration camps that were there, the gulags that were there in the Norilsk area. It focused our minds very much on the fact that they exercised power in Russia in their own way. And we knew that Chandra and uh, that Chandra and, and, and Lauren were going to experience ex- culture very, very differently. And they were going to see power exercised in a very different way. But there were not only, there were other kinds of experiences as well that were going to uh, bring some of that home to us. 
Um, I think of uh, the fact that Joyce and I had been in various countries from here in the Caribbean area, Puerto Rico, Costa Rica, down to Paraguay, uh, Brazil, Brazil, and then over to Europe, to France, some other kinds of situations like that. And every time we would go from one country to another, to another, to another, we were entering a different circle of power. How they exercised control over people. Some people exercise it with a sledgehammer. Other people exercise it with a velvet-covered brick. But it's still power. And so we saw those kinds of things, and those are the kinds of things which help to emphasize a little bit about, of, about uh, what I want us to think about this morning. You know, one of the things that I have found out is that size matters when it comes to the exercise of power. In your, let me illustrate that real quickly. In your family, is any one member in your family, does any one particular person in your family wear a police badge on their lapel to enforce the rules? No. Now, that doesn't mean that no family has its own policeman. That's a different question. But at least it's not formalized. So this is the policeman within our family who goes around making sure everyone enforces every house rule that we have. And the reason we don't need a policeman in our family is because the smaller the group, the easier it is to keep control without having that imposition of a, of a written code of ethics for the family. But what happens when you have 50,000 people living in the same city? Can you manage living without a policeman? Hmm. Look at Baltimore. Uh, the point is, the bigger a circle gets, the more it needs to have a way of enforcing the behavior, and that means control, even to the point of having military, and having a policeman, and having a sheriff having a posse or whatever. The bigger, the more need for tight controls. It's for safety, and I can understand that. Abuse, it happens. But the necessity for it is still unavoidable. Exercise of power. Power circle. In Jesus. Any of you ever seen this book? Can you see the title? The Jesus I Never Knew. Do you see the author? Philip Yancey. Have you read some of his books by chance? Some of you perhaps? This book is worth reading. It's a look at Jesus with a, from a very realistic background. And among other things, Yancey points out that Jesus did not walk around Palestine on a cloud. He walked around Palestine 
facing day after day after day and facing people who were demanding of him things. They wanted to exercise power over Jesus. Who is Jesus to think that he can do this, that, the other? We have our rules and regulations. He will abide by them. Yancey deals with that. If you have an opportunity, borrow it, buy it, get it online, however you might wish. I think you'll probably find it to be quite quite uh, helpful. I've asked uh, Ron if he would come up now and read a text we're going to look at this morning on power. It's a text that our pastor used a while ago. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. And Ron is going to read verses 16 through 30. It won't be an unknown text for you. But what I want us to look at is somewhat selective. It will not be doing, repeating what Paul preached on a while ago from this text. But Luke chapter 4, 16 through 30. And then we'll keep working on this whole idea of the circle of power. Okay? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim relief to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city 
and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Jesus in Nazareth, his hometown. The uh, leader of the synagogue had asked Jesus to have the teaching session that particular day. And Jesus takes advantage of that to refer to the Old Testament passage in Isaiah that that was referred to and Jesus quotes. And then says to the people, what we just read or what I just read, that is now being fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament part of the Bible that talks about what the Messiah is going to do has come to earth. And I'm the one who's proclaiming it. And by the way, parenthetically, without saying it, that everyone can read it in their own mind through the experience, Jesus is saying, Guess who is going to do it? And they knew who he meant himself. Now, how does that involve power? Well, it involves power because the people listening to Jesus know that that claim or that description by Jesus is a way of saying Somebody, and it appears as if Jesus is the one who's making the statement, is going to be or pretend to be the Messiah. When they heard Messiah, there was an image that came to their minds. Just like when we think New York, there's an image that comes to our mind. Or we think the... Alliance Bible Church in McHenry, an image comes to our mind. We have images that go with some things. So, Messiah, what is the image that they are thinking, picturing? It is the image of a person who is going to finally lead the Jewish people to some type of glorious existence similar to what it was in the Old Testament in the times of David and Solomon, the glory days. After all, the king of David, or the king of Israel, that's going to be the Messiah. But, notice, that is going to include taking on the Romans. Because the Romans are the world power at that point, at least in that part of the world. There wasn't a person in Israel who thought that one man could take on a battalion of Roman soldiers. They were realists. Any person who was going to act as a Messiah is not only going to have to be willing to fight, he's also going to have to have people with him. You don't take on Rome without your own kind of army. So a messianic 
claim by Jesus is another way of saying, people, you need to join me. Now, this is the way that people are going to be thinking. Now, if you were a person in Nazareth, and you understood Jesus to be making this claim of being the Messiah, and you knew that that's the context of taking on Rome in whatever shape it's going to be, I want you to picture the kind of questions you would be wanting to find out from, from Jesus. Is it worth it for any of our sons, our uncles, our husbands, our fathers, to join with you in some kind of military attack on Rome? Well, the natural answer would be, who can take on Rome? Nobody. But, this is going to sound strange, and I know that, but bear with me for a moment. But what happens if the leader of your insurrection army has the ability to do miracles, and especially three that I'm going to mention. And he is the one who's going to lead his military against Rome. Number one, that leader of your military is able to raise the dead. You see what that means right away? That means you kill a Jew and Jesus is going to bring him back to life. So you don't have to have a huge army. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But... What happens if Jesus can do that? What happens if, number two, Jesus can do the miracles of feeding people? And so your military doesn't have to have a supply line going back to who knows what farm. He can take whatever food there is, make sure the army has enough. They never run out of food. They never run out of soldiers. And then, to even make it more, he can heal the sick and injured. What kind of an army is that? That you can't kill them, you can't injure them, and you can't starve them. Now, does it make sense now to say, to think of those people in Nazareth thinking to themselves and saying out loud, and Jesus puts it into his own words, We want a sign. We want to see a miracle to verify that it is worth our investment to come alongside of you. Now, to us, that would make sense. We want the verification. That is an incredible demand Jesus is making on people. But it is not merely something that appears logical. It is also the expression of, that I explain like this. Jesus, here are the Nazarenes. Jesus, do this, the miracle, like you did in Capernaum. Do a miracle. And then we will do something else. You see how they have set up the power struggle? Who has the power? Jesus 
or the people. The people are claiming to force Jesus to do a miracle when they want it done for their own benefit. Will Jesus end up getting anything out of it? Maybe yes, maybe no. But in the mind of the people, they are the ones who are calling the shots. Jesus, do the miracle, and here's the reason why. It was a power struggle. Jesus, the super wise Messiah, the loving Messiah, he hears the challenge. He knows what it is. And he says more or less, I think it's about time for us to have a little history lesson. He refers to two people in the Old Testament, very, very famous prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the first, and Elisha was the disciple of Elijah. He came later. And Jesus refers to each of them having a very similar experience. We'll think about the first one, which is a little bit more well-known, perhaps. Elisha. No, excuse me, Elijah. Now, I'll paraphrase it a little bit, so bear with me. But this is more or less what happens. One day, some people come to Elijah's, Elijah's home, and they realize that he'd been gone for a while, and so they wanted to come back and see him. And so when, he got, when he, they got to where Elijah was, they were talking, and they, one of them says to Elijah, hey, uh, we, we saw that you were out of town for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I took a little trip. Uh, where'd you go? Oh, just out. Uh, yeah, we figured that out. But where did you go? I, I headed northwest of here. Well, let's be a little bit more specific. Where did you go? Well, I went up uh, to uh, Phoenicia. Phoenicia? Sidon? Why would you go up there? Well... Just thought I'd take a walk. What'd you do when you were there? Uh, he's sort of beating around the bush here, Elijah. Oh, I just saw some people. They wouldn't let it go. Who'd you see? Oh, happened to run across a, a woman up there that... Oh, a woman? You interested? No, 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 no. That wasn't the issue. What was she like? Well, I mean, they were on a bunny trail and they were not going to get, get off of it, eh? And so, he finally has to tell them, well, there was a lady there, she was a widow lady, and she was poor, and, and, well, she needed some help, and... I made it possible for her to have food and an unending supply of oil. What? Where did this happen, Elijah? What was the town in Palestine where this happened? No, no, it wasn't in Palestine. It was up there in, in Sidon, Phoenicia. So you went up to Sidon, Phoenicia... Helped this lady, poor lady, provided for her, and came back home, 
And we have all kind of poor people, poor ladies here in Palestine. And have you ever helped any of them? Now, to make things worse, at the time that Elijah was alive and he's helping this woman there in Sidon, the Israelites are ruled by two very famous or infamous, as you want to, as you prefer, people. You've heard the person Jezebel? She was the queen. Ahab was her husband. Guess where Jezebel was from? She was from Phoenicia. And she had brought all of her Baal worship practices into Israel. And so here, Elijah has gone up to Phoenicia where there's the Queen Jezebel who is sitting on the throne as much as her husband is. And Elijah is helping and comforting and providing for the enemy. And then he comes back. Now, what kind of answer could Elijah, without my fleshing it out the way I have done, what kind of answer could he have given to those people who said, what did you do while you were there and why? If Elijah would have cut to the chase, he would have said this. I did what I did because God told me to do it. And do you see what he set up? I either listen to God or I listen to the people who despise the pagans. But I listen to God. In a power struggle, God, says Elijah, in a power struggle, God always wins. He calls the shots. You have a similar situation in the story of, uh, should I get my screen back on here? No, I guess I will here eventually. Hold on for just one moment. There we go. Same thing happened in the case of Elisha, where he heals the enemy's general. And the Jewish people ask, who told you to heal the enemy's general when we have all kind of leprosy people here in our own country? And Elisha says, God did. You see how the power struggle is shaping up here? Does the person listen to the people or does the person listen to God? Who is going to call call the shots? You see, in a power struggle, or in the exercise of power, when... Let me personalize it like this. 
when I have a need, any kind of need, for food, for company, for warmth, for friendship, for education, I have a need. Something has to be satisfied. The person who can satisfy that need is in a position to tell me what to do. That's just the way life is. If I am not hungry, if I'm not hungry, a person cannot get me to do anything by promising me a T-bone steak. But if I am hungry, I need food. And the person sitting in this chair right here is the only person around who can satisfy my need because he's the only one who has the food. And unless that person here gives me some of that food, I'm going to die. Guess who has the power? The person who has the food. Power comes from the ability of responding to the need that another person has. And that automatically puts you into the camp of the power person. On the other hand, whenever you have a need, like it or not, you have opened yourself up for someone, if they want, to exercise power over you. It's not complicated. It's just that it's so pervasive. And right now, in this particular moment, we were to analyze our lives and try to identify who have power over us. Can you realize how many people would have some kind of power for different reasons over us? But how many people are there out there over whom you have power? Because you are able to respond to their needs. Now, you don't have to exercise the power. But having it and exercising are two different things, but you see how that, see how that works. Let me uh, personalize this just a little bit. Before I ever, ever, ever was thinking about the issue of power... when I was probably around seven years old, living in Dayton, Ohio. Some, my younger brother, we had some friends. One day, some little guys, about four or five or six of us, I don't remember now how many, we all gathered under a little pine tree with some other shrubbery around. So if you were under the, under the pine tree, and no one would see that you were even in there. Sort of like a little natural fort. So here we are, just kids, just, you know. One of the guys, about my age, suddenly, they're sitting around, he breaks out a pack of cigarettes. He's only about six or seven himself. I, where he got, I have no idea, no idea. He starts smoking, and obviously you don't do that in the company of kids unless you're ready to either share or try to get them involved in your own little advice or, or whatever, you know. So. Well, after he was light, after he'd lighted up, he's puffing away a little bit. 
he turned to me and offered me a cigarette. Well, I had never had a cigarette in my life. Never planned to. But suddenly, I can't explain it. Suddenly, for whatever reason, I had the need to smoke. Now, what I know is, of course, I didn't have the need to smoke because I'd already, quote, enjoyed the taste. I had the need to smoke because it was going to allow me to be part of the group. That was the deeper need that I had. And so I said, yeah. If I recall correctly, I'm not going to tell you how many years ago, I'll tell you how old I am, but I tell you, it's more than half a century ago, I still remember it was a Paul Mall cigarette. Talk about leaving an impression upon a person. So here I am, I light the thing up. I guess I lit it up, I don't know if you can. Put it in my mouth, took a... So far, I haven't gone to hell. So, I decide to take the next step. Inhale. That was not the thing to do. I not only just about choked to death, but the following Sunday, I mean, it impacted me incredibly, physically and otherwise. Next Sunday evening when Dad finished his sermon, and in our church we had an altar call at a lot of services, I don't remember the details, but, my, but they tell me I ran to the altar as fast as my little legs could take me. Man, I had to repent of my rebellion against God and against my parents. But I was exposed to the exercise of power even before I understood what it was. That boy with the cigarette had power over me and I didn't even know what was going on. I know now, but I didn't know it then. And then later, like you guys, we've had our, our situations, teaching in a boys' school in Nyack, where the administrator had power to tell me what I had to teach, what I couldn't teach, what I should do. After all, if I wanted a paycheck every month, I'd better do what he told me. One of the most embarrassing ones for me was when I was in Argentina. It was a young person, relatively young. I identified with the young pastors in the Argentine church. And I knew that the young pastors were somewhat upset with the older native or native national pastors because they, the younger ones, thought that the older ones were abusing their privileges and lording it over the younger people and telling the younger ones where they had to go and what they had to do. And they sort of saw this chasm between the, the generations. And, and the older, older guy said, no, that's not the case, that's not the case, that's not the case. But the younger guy said, yes, it is, yes, it is, yes, it is. Well, here I am, the young missionary. Which group am I going to identify with? The older gray heads or the young Turks? 
Well, for whatever reason, I decided I'm going to identify with the young ones. They're my age. I might not speak Spanish well, but at least I'm their age. I can learn from them. One day I was in a meeting with some of the older people in a committee meeting. And I happened to hear the way they were talking about making assignments of younger people. And I realized how much these guys were telling, basically saying, you'll go here, you'll go here, you'll go here, you'll go here. They were taking over the power. They were assigning people. I saw what was going on. It's exactly what the young guys were saying was happening. So here we are one day in the classroom in El Instituto Biblico Buenos Aires in the Bible College, having a meeting with the older guys, the younger guys, all of us. And I decide the most stupid thing. Can't believe how stupid it was. Well, if you know me, you would know that that's part of the course. But I decide to tell the entire group what I had heard in that committee meeting. You can't get more stupid than that. But I did. Because, you see, what I wanted was to be accepted by that younger generation. They didn't even realize the power they had over me. But I did what I did because I was responding to what I sensed was their power, their need, and they had, or they could satisfy my need. When I said what I said, you know what the older guys said? You don't know what you're talking about. That's not the way it happened. Oh, it was awful. That evening, when I got home, I told Joyce, Joyce, I think we better call the airline and get a ticket. We're out of here. Everything that I had been planning to do for years of going to Argentina as a missionary, I felt as if I had thrown it into the garbage can by the stupidity of what I did because I had unwittingly allowed people to have power over me while at the same time I thought I was exercising power over them. And I thought everything's gone. Well, fortunately it wasn't, but I never forgot it. Over whom do you have power? you have power over somebody? Do you exercise it well? Or do you use it to get your own goals? Your own agenda? And do you let other people exercise power over you? Do you deal with it? I hope so. Next Sunday, I would like for us to think about the circle of love. That is in contrast to the circle of power. Now, not everyone will agree with it. I'll have to explain a little bit about that on next Sunday. But we have communion next Sunday. We will be celebrating the fact that Jesus died. And he died because he loves us. He lives love. He lives in the circle of love. And he wants us to join him in the circle of love. And we have the option. All right?
Let's pray. Father God, for your many acts of kindness, graciousness, love, and other virtues that we know, we thank you as a group and we thank you individually. Allow this idea of power to help us analyze what's going on and help us to see how much we are either victimized by it or we happen to victimize others that free us from living in that circle. Make us aware. Make us willing to confess. Make us willing to ask forgiveness. And free us from the demands that others put on us, but which are contrary to your will for our lives. Make us smart, Father. Make us holy. And we'll thank you. Amen.